afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by ProTennis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments anytime in the Q&A box and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to have our main presentation from Dr. John Halamka, president of the Mayo Clinic Platform. Then we're going to have a word with our sponsor, with Nick Culbertson, co-founder and CEO at ProTennis, and then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Uh, Dr. Halamka, good to see you again. Well, hey, thank, thanks so much, Anthony. So if you ask yourself, what at this point in what I'll call the post-COVID new normal, and we know the president has said the pandemic is over, and we know that, you know, it's not quite, but it certainly is starting to signal a new normal. What are the major policy considerations as we look at these next six quarters? And I would argue this, that if you were looking at small hospitals, look at the ecosystem across this country right now. They're having challenges with staffing challenges with supply chain, challenges with finances. Anthony, I don't know if you saw that Ascension just reported 2022 results and they have lost uh, 1.8 billion on a margin of minus 3.1%. Okay, so you're starting to see huge pressures facing our provider organizations trying to do healthcare delivery, as well as burden and burnout and anxiety. Uh, Anthony, I don't know if you caught the New York Times article yesterday reflecting on a West Virginia doctor who practiced during COVID to make the community healthier and then ultimately developed a life-threatening heart condition purely related to the stress and the trauma of trying to deliver care in a very challenging time. So I tell you all this because that's the background, right? That's the ecosystem around us as we hit fall of 2022. Happens tomorrow, by the way, Anthony, at 9 p.m. Fall I'm begins. Excited. Yeah. And so what are the policy drivers in that ecosystem, in that environment we should consider uh, as important? So let's go to that next slide. So first thing I would argue that at a time of staffing challenges, at a time where financial margins are compromised, at a time when supply chain is, is difficult, we're going to see more and more machine learning and automation. I mean, the question of course is, if you can't get a pathologist in your local community to read a slide, if you can't get a radiation oncologist or physicist to create that radiation delivery, can an algorithm augmenting human time and expertise help us deliver the same care in geographically diverse places at less cost with less issues of immediate presence of a person? The answer is absolutely, right? Mayo Clinic has now 60 different algorithms, a number through FDA clearance, some breakthrough designation that are in the fields of cardiology, radiology, radiation oncology, behavioral health, neurology, doing what I just said, creating solutions for the community to help them deal with some of these environmental uh, challenges they face. But here's the question. Last time, Anthony, when we met, we were talking about the need 
for guidelines and guardrails on the use of machine learning. We talked about the notion that could there be implementation guidance as to what I'll call ML ops, how you manage machine learning from the beginning of the idea to its end delivery and monitor it over time. And we, this fall, uh, a whole coalition, this Coalition for Health AI at coalitionforhealthai.org, will be publishing that implementation guidance for free. And that coalition is all the major health systems in the country, Microsoft, Google, and others working together, uh, Office of National Coordinator, FDA. We're all doing this together. So that's great. We're going to have national guidance. So then you have to ask, well, what will the policy or regulatory framework about the increased use of machine learning look like. So, Anthony, you know that you're in New Jersey, I presume, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And so, yeah, I sometimes when we meet use this sort of silly commentary. So I have just developed an amazing algorithm in Minnesota because I used 5 million Scandinavian Lutherans and we have got this thing with incredible positive predictive value. And now I'm going to run it in New Jersey. And oh, by the way, all the doctors are not even going to look at Anthony, not ask Anthony any questions. They're just going to believe the algorithm because the algorithm was such a professionally developed clinical trial documented in the academic literature kind of thing. Well, I think we would all agree that's quite wrong. I, you can't just rely on a math, not magic, algorithm to make decisions for Anthony's care. It needs to be humans that are assisted with statistics saying, oh, you know, here are the possibilities. We should think about these five diseases. And then the human has to make the decision. And here's why I tell you all this. So you, you know the way that rulemaking works at CMS is there's a notice of proposed rule and that gets a lot of commentary. And then there's a final rule that gets promulgated and enforced. So there is a proposed rule from CMS on the non-discrimination in health programs and activities. And obviously it covers equity and inclusion and a whole variety of reaching out to those who are underserved, but there's an important provision and that provision on page 176, by the way, if Anthony, you read the rule itself, says the following, and I've just excerpted. it. So imagine that a doctor relies on an algorithm and the algorithm does something really bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that in fact, the covered entity, the provider organization will be in effect held responsible if what they did was replaced clinical judgment, talking to the patient, asking the patient preferences with simply an algorithm in a closed loop system. So in effect, it's the worry that these algorithms will be biased and unfair and unusable. And I think this is just really important because it's starting to show that in this early, early days, that we'll probably end up with regulatory language about how we're going to introduce these new innovative machine learning technologies in healthcare workflows in a way that respects the patient and does no harm. So I actually, I mean, again, we'll see where this goes. It's just a proposed rule, but the idea that I want a human, a doctor making the decisions supplemented with technology and not technology just treating me based on a million patients like me that came before.
So there you go. I think it's important as we think about this future of machine learning, helping our ecosystem around us over these next couple of quarters. Well, another issue that we all have to consider, next slide, is we all know that in the COVID period, a whole lot more telehealth was done. And telehealth means so many things. You know, telehealth could mean replacing your ambulatory visit with FaceTime. Telehealth could be sending your EKG from your Apple Watch to your doctor, or telehealth could be real-time patient monitoring with sophisticated home-based interventions that are serious and complex, and in fact, no different than you might get in bricks and mortar care. And so here's again the interesting question. We know that during this public health emergency, there have been regulatory rollbacks, there have been waivers that enabled different practitioners to practice in different ways, different skill sets, different sites of service. So Anthony knows that I happen to be the national expert on poisonous mushrooms and plants. And during this regulatory waiver, I have been able to treat patients in all the states in the country and our territories directly because even though I'm only licensed in Massachusetts, California, and Minnesota, the regulatory waiver allowed me to develop telehealth services to everyone in the country. So what's gonna happen in this post-public health emergency era? Will we reimburse hospital without walls, cancer care in the home, novel care models that give you the serious and complex without you having to leave your living room. It's an interesting challenge. Remember that Mayo, Kaiser, and others have proved this model over the last two years. We've discharged over 12,000 patients, by the way, Anthony, to date. And what we've seen in the 12,000 patients is safety, quality, outcomes, exactly the same in your living room as they would be in a downtown bricks and mortar facility. Cost, substantially less. Patient satisfaction, wildly improved, right? Net promoter scores of 97%. And then of course, really interesting, things like hospital acquired infections, well, they disappear because nobody is gonna have MRSA in their living room, right? And falls. They don't really happen because it's your home. I mean, you're kind of used to where the furniture is. <laughs> so, wow, great experience, lower cost. Why not continue such a model? Well, so what was important during the period uh, early on in the uh, COVID pandemic, a whole number of organizations came together to ask CMS to offer DRGs with parity the idea that you would get reimbursed for delivering care in the living room at the same level as delivering care in a bricks and mortar facility. And, and that was implemented. So this is great, right? Creates a sustainable model for delivering these services in non-traditional settings. And it's interesting just to get a look at the impact of this waiver is that 252 hospitals in 37 states, which represent 26% of U.S. hospitals, I mean, if you exclude some of the critical access, very small, uh, you know, 25 better under type hospitals. And so, hey, 26% of the healthcare systems in the United States are delivering high quality and great outcomes at reduced cost and higher pa patient satisfaction. And when the public health emergency expires, 
the funding disappears, the DRG equivalency disappears, and you're back to having to negotiate every single interaction. And as Anthony and I were discussing before the program today, like who's gonna pay? You know, oh, I don't wanna go to a hospital. Well, hey, if you, if you give me your visa card, I'll care for you in your living room. Well, no, we don't want that. Mm -hmm. So go to the next slide and let's see where we can go from here. So this coalition that I've described, it's Mayo, it's Kaiser Permanente, it's Medically Home and now 18 other health systems have come together to advocate in both the House and Senate for saying, let's continue these waivers that have worked so well for telehealth and reimburse at a standard DRG. And let's do that for at least two years past the public health emergency, which will give us more experience. And then let's try to come up with a permanent waiver. So the, is, I mean, if you've got COPD, if you have uh, congestive heart failure, if you have pneumonia, why should we tell you, oh, you know, you can't get antibiotics in your home when it's cheaper and has, you know, better patient satisfaction. This is something we really need to continue. So as I say, it's sort of two major trends uh, this particular month as we talk about the policy update. It's AIML, usability, fairness, and equity with regulatory language around that and care at a distance, especially high acuity care at a distance being reimbursed at parity for at least a couple of years past the public health emergency and hopefully permanently. So with that, let me reflect on a policy issue that's very personal. And it's a set of work that needs all of us to pay attention to, especially you'll discover as you're part of the sandwich generation and you care for those older than you and those for you younger than you, you you're gonna find yourself wanting policy clarity. So let's go to the next slide. I'm 60 years old, my mother is 80 years old. On July 14th of 2022, I went to visit her in California and found that she was febrile, confused, and dehydrated. I took her to the emergency departments. We evaluated her mental status and we found that she had a brain abscess. The right part of her brain had an infection in it. Very confusing diagnosis, but we treated with antibiotics and she actually got better. The antibiotics cured the abscess. It took nine weeks. Last Saturday, I carried her from a hospital bed in Los Angeles to Unity Farm Sanctuary, where she is today, about 20 feet from me, receiving home-based care. Think for a moment as you've experienced not only the transitions from emergency department to inpatient to skilled nursing facility to home care to potentially hospice, that's fine. There's a lot of medical and clinical issues, but who's gonna pay? How do you organize this path of care in a way where it's understood what is available? Who is going to fund it? My mother has Medicare part A and B. She has an Anthem platinum supplemental policy, and she has long-term care insurance. Well, hey, shouldn't that just be seamless as you go to each site of care, who's going to pay and what care you can get? Well, I will tell you, for those of you who haven't had to navigate 
end of life issues around your parents yet, or dealing with going to these various transitions of care or seeking things like 24 hour caregivers in the home or home hospice, this is anything but clear. <laughs> and what ends up happening, if you just go search the internet, you will discover that it takes a team of PhDs mm -hmm. to figure out what you can get and who's going to pay. And the rules around it are so very confusing. It's like, well, if you have skilled nursing in the home for less than eight hours a day, for fewer than seven days a week, in a period within 100 days of a hospitalization, Medicare will pay for it. Okay, well, what if the patient is a little bit more acute than that? Well, the Medicare won't. What if they need home healthcare aids for activities of daily living, for dressing, for eating, for going to the bathroom? Well, Medicare won't pay for that. Well, then you say, oh, well, then long-term care covers that. Well, it's just not so easy, right? Because again, as you read your long-term care policy, you'll discover infinite numbers of exceptions mm -hmm. and partial payments and such. And so it turns out that a whole lot of what you're going to end up encountering is self-pay. You know, a certain kind of transition or a certain kind of option will require you to self-pay. And if you say, oh, well, maybe I don't have the resources to self-pay, well, then you'll discover, oh, well, maybe skilled nursing care in a nursing home kind of setting, well, that will be covered for a period of time by Medicare. But then you, of course, ask the question, well, what is in the best interest of the patient and what is compassionate, you know, and what is going to give them in their final days a, a quality of experience? Maybe it's not going to be the kind of thing that will be easily reimbursed. So I only tell you all this because it's, it's a rat's nest mm -hmm. of unanswered policy questions at this time in history. But here's where I want to give you all hope. What I am seeing in our work in hospital at home, in cancer care at home, is there is an awakening to the notion that care isn't episodic, that care is a continuum, it's birth to death, and there needs to be clearly navigatable patterns with clearly delineated reimbursement for each of the steps along the journey. So this awareness is coming. And I think that regulatory reform, policy change, is going to be forthcoming, especially in our aging society in the post-COVID new normal. And the thing you need to realize along the way is that your faith in humanity, I know, Anthony, it's kind of hard as you pick up the you know news of the day and you look at polarization and climate change and war and conflict, it's hard to sometimes have faith in humanity. As I transported my mother on this medical journey I've just described to you. So we boarded Delta flight from Boston to Los Angeles. I told the flight crew, this is my mother's last flight. And that's not because of longevity. It's because my mother has stated, you know, my desire is to be in Massachusetts for the rest of my life. And I just don't want to travel. And so next slide. The crew wrote this note rewarding my mother for her decades of experience flying and traveling and teaching and having an impact. 
the CEO of Delta actually saw this note. And I tell you, this is a very emotional time for me. Your faith in humanity should never be reduced by all the things we're seeing in the ecosystem around us. So my hope is that all of us will work together for positive policy change so that these experiences that all of us in the course of life will have will be more seamless, more obvious, and not require 40 years of medical training as I've had just to navigate. There's always hope. So with that, Anthony, let me turn it back to you. Oh, and I look forward to our discussion. Very, very powerful presentation, Dr. Holomka. Thank you for sharing <clears throat> so much with our audience. Um, I'm going to bring in uh, Nick Culbertson now, um, who's uh, representing our sponsor, his organization, Pro Tennis. Um, and Nick, uh, a few questions for you. Uh, let me start off by asking you if you want to tell uh, the listeners a little bit about your organization. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Anthony. And, and Dr. Lomgo, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And I really appreciate not only the, the the depth and breadth that you covered today, but just the personal aspect as well. So thank you so much. Um, so my name is Nick Culbertson. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of Pretennis. We leverage artificial intelligence to help hospitals automate compliance tasks uh, and ultimately reduce risk uh, across the organization, ranging from uh, uh, privacy and security threats uh, towards uh, fraud on the clinical side as well, um, including uh, drug diversion or other types of prescription billing issues as well. All right. Very good, Nick. So uh, Dr. Halamka mentioned, uh, you know, this proposed rule that CMS is coming out with. Very interesting. We have page 176, so he's made it easy for people to find. Uh, basically, the idea in the rule is that if you simply rely on some sort of algorithm to make a medical decision, I guess, and it turns out to be the wrong one, you are culpable as a health system that's got to be looked at. Um, but so let's talk about AI and software. Um, what should buyers be asking their software vendors about what's going on in those black boxes of AI? Um, I wonder if, you know, there's going to be, you know, people are going to have to do more investigation to make sure they know what they're getting because the policy implications are you're not off the hook. You, you're responsible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's an exciting time because hospitals can purchase artificial intelligence tools off the shelf and, and implement the organization to improve workflows and uh, benefit. At the same time, it's also a little scary because um, you don't necessarily know what you're purchasing unless you do the, the correct due diligence. And as, as Dr. Lamka pointed out, covered entities will be responsible for decisions made by uh, or guidance provided by artificial intelligence uh, as identified by the, the proposed rule from CMS. Um, and I, I do, I agree with Dr. Lamka that more, more regulation is, is on the horizon. Um, so to really understand what you're getting with a vendor, I, I think I can think of four easy questions to, to dissect with that team. The first is understanding who is on their team. Uh, do they leverage data scientists that are trained in artificial intelligence, or uh, is it just a team of software engineers that's uh, that does not have the same type of skill set in machine learning? So understanding who are the types of people that are that are you can't just build AI, you need to manage it. And so who are the individuals responsible for managing it as well? Um, second question is, is how are you training 
the artificial intelligence, what data is being used to train. I think this is really important to ask for startups too, because a lot of the best AI need a really robust set of training data. And you want to understand, is it uh, your own data that's being used to train the algorithm or is it other health systems or other uh, organizations' data that's been used to really understand what's going into it and to know if it's going to be as effective on your on your program? Um, understanding the third question, understanding what metrics they use for success. Uh, we leverage um, actual feedback from our customers on false positives and false negatives to determine whether or not our AI is working and constantly optimize on that. Um, but the last thing I think is the most important is is what kind of bias are you finding in AI? Um, the, the tricky thing with artificial intelligence is you're you're scaling up uh, systems that can be done manually. And so if there's bias at the manual level, all you're going to do is scale bias. Mm-hmm. And that creates an, a tremendous amount of risk. And so every company in this area should be constantly evaluating their product for bias. And there's inevitable bias that's going to be built into it. And so if you're not finding and discovering it, that means it's being left and ignored. And so it's really important that both covered entities, um, uh, the consumers of AI and also the, the vendors the providing it are constantly asking themselves, how can we be better? How can we avoid uh, these types of issues that are going to create more risk for our customers in the future? Well, this is so we saw uh, what's come out or and that's under the notice for an NP, a notice for proposed rulemaking. What do you anticipate? I mean, this is to me, it seems like kind of a big deal. This is sort of a first step. Um, what, what do you, how do you see this evolving? Uh, I do think we're going to, I agree with Dr. Lomko, we're seeing more regulation, uh, in the future. I, I think there's a lot of different aspects of, uh, federal entities that are looking into this and thinking about the ethics of artificial intelligence and how it's helping, uh, versus hurting, uh, our, our industry. Uh, I think the best thing that, um, uh, the folks can do on this front is, is really thinking about the relationships they have with vendors. Again, this is, exciting time because there's really great technologies out there. But if you're not partnering with them on how to build a really good product and how you're really solving the problem together, uh, what is happening is is that vendors could be left unchecked. And that's where these issues like we were talking about with bias could become worse over time, uh, especially as the intelligence evolves with new information going through the system. Um, And so I think it's not about just vetting a vendor it's really about thinking about the long-term partnership and the long-term uh, relationship you're establishing uh, with your vendor partners. What's the difference between automated intelligence and artificial intelligence and machine learning? I get lost in some of these terms. Are there important differences here? Uh, absolutely. A lot of people throw around the term AI uh, casually just to mean um, you know, technology that they're using to solve a problem. Uh, artificial intelligence is a category uh, of, of uh, it's a broader category of, of machine learning that's very specific to types of uh, statistical algorithms to, that is replicating human intelligence at scale, basically. Um, artif- uh, automatic intelligence is just software. That's just software that's uh, running algorithms, whether it's filters or reports. And so it's a general uh, term that allows vendors to call their products AI but not really have any true artificial intelligence in there. And this just goes back to the point of uh, really asking vendors tough questions because a lot of companies are saying that they use artificial intelligence, but they're just um, maybe statistical inference or uh, deviations or or filters in their uh, algorithms. 
Yeah, so I thought your your first question for the people to figure out if they want to engage with someone's AI was very interesting. Who's on the team? Who's 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 doing this? Who who do you have over there? And I guess if they're reluctant to uh, to bring those people out, I mean, you can't they can't just be the folks in the basement anymore. I want to know who they are. Bring them out. Let's see what it, you know where what's their training. So you you just have to be a little more. Um, aggressive i don't i don't i don't know if that's the right word in your vetting of these vendors correct well and, and it goes back to the idea of partnership um our data scientists want to talk to our customers because right. that's how they're going to improve their their code that's how they're going to improve the value of the product that we're building and so they're eager to talk to customers about what are you seeing how are you getting benefit of that um and so you're right it shouldn't be um you know a black box project that that you don't have any access to right all right, very good. Uh, Dr. Holomka, let's bring you back in. Um, just want to remind our folks that uh, now is the time to send in your questions, um, and we'll get those in front of our panelists. So, um, Dr. Holomka, I want to get your, your a little more of your thoughts on this proposed rule. Um, you know, how these rules are written, it, it can have a big effect, a word here, a word there. Uh, what kind of comments do you think will come in what would be your thought on how it's currently written? I guess you don't want something where you have a very chilling effect on hospitals embracing these type of things, but it makes perfect sense that someone's got to look at this. I don't want a decision made just based off an algorithm. It's got to be ultimately reviewed. So just your thoughts around how they've written it now, what your comments would be in terms of feedback, and what do you think might ultimately come out in terms of a final rule? Well, absolutely. So, Nick, you know, think about it's 1996. And in 1996, innovators in hospitals say there's this new thing called the World Wide Web. <laughs> and we would actually like to use the World Wide Web to reach our doctors and patients with novel communications and care coordination. And of course, the immediate response is, oh, my God, that's a huge risk. Don't you know the World Wide Web is a swamp of malfeasance and thieves? <laughs> And so what and the reason I relate this example, because it does relate to the new rule, it had this kind of chilling effect that there was not early adoption of a lot of emerging web technologies. And we had persistence of client server because this new web security was a bit misunderstood and the compliance was misunderstood and the monitoring systems misunderstood. You always have to be careful to balance the speed of innovation with your loss of reputational risk or you're running into, say, compliance penalties of some kind. But it by no means should paralyze you, right? So, yeah, you know, Anthony, you and I have been doing this for a long time. And, you know, Nick is 29, so we've been doing it longer <laughs> than him. <laughs> but remember when HIPAA came out, they said, oh, well, HIPAA, that will prevent us from sharing data. That'll prevent us from doing innovative things. Well, the answer is, as I think we've all learned, HIPAA told us how, right? HIPAA said, these are the guidelines, the best practices and the guardrails. Oh, okay, now I know how. So I tell you all that because as we see these new regulations, what you hope comes out of them is not a chilling effect that reduces innovation or you know, eliminates notions of risk-taking. It says, ah, Here's how you can do it. Here's how to narrow the risks. Here is how to get the innovation that you want 
without crossing a line that could cause patient harm. So again, I think the spirit is correct. Uh, you know, you always ask the question, how do you enforce these things? And, and that will probably evolve, right? So when the final rule comes out, we'll see more granularity about what are, what are the tests? You know, it's exactly the sort of thing that Nick mentioned. Oh, before you deploy, you probably want these couple of things documented. And if you have those things documented, if a bad thing happens, you know, bad things do happen. <laughs> but yeah. you've done everything you can to mitigate the risk and therefore you're not held responsible. But if you didn't ask, who wrote this? How was it tested? Is it appropriate for any of the patients I serve? Oh, I'm gonna put it in a closed loop system and not have human review. Then you're gonna see liability and potential financial fines levied. And I think that's okay. Yeah, it's 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 not like uh, when the doctor's out and, and the calls go to the to the system, right? <laughs> the call, I'm going to play golf and my, my algorithm's on, so it'll make my clinical decisions while I play golf. That's not really? gonna, Nick, do you have any thoughts? I really appreciate uh, Dr. Alhamka's point. And just a reminder that HIPAA has uh, the P&A or portability and accountability, actually not privacy in the title. And a lot of people do think it's just about privacy and locking things down, but it's exactly right. It's how to, how to um, really understand how to do things. And I think future guidance will help us with that too and understand how best to do it. Um, and the only thing I would add on is to just go back to my earlier point about partnerships and really making sure that you're bringing people to help you figure out the right way to do things. And it's the best way to build forward. Very good. Dr. Halanka, if you are a CIO at a health system, um, do you want to be communicating this proposed rule to certain individuals in your health system? Uh, because this could impact uh, you know, a lot of times requests for software bubble up from users, from clinicians, from departments, bubble up, reach IT. Um, do you want to get the message out about this rule and just let people know what's going on? What's What would your advice be to the CIOs out there? So I'm going to give you a quizzical response, oh boy. which is how many hospital CEOs have you met that say, you know, I woke up this morning and what we need is an algorithm? <laughs> <laughs> like never ever happens, right? What is happening is there are a set of business problems that the CEOs are deeply worried about. And so my advice is that the CIOs and the CMIOs say, hey, CEO, you know, we're going to solve this business problem by bringing in software that will help us with efficiency and quality and that software itself has certain risks and there are regulatory uh, changes that are brewing around those risks, but it's gonna tell us, instead of us having to guess <laughs> what the best practice might be, it's gonna actually tell us the best practice. So we'll be able to address the business challenge in a way that also minimizes risk. Uh, so don't talk about the algorithm, the details of the rule are probably not going to resonate, but solving a business problem while mitigating risk, that will resonate. But you would communicate this around. Well, just that the notion is, is yeah. that as we are creating novel technology solutions to solve business problems, that there are going to be compliance implications mm -hmm. and that we are going to ensure that we, uh, implement these things and are compliant. Right. Nick, any thoughts? 
just to tie this back to the point about metrics, you're absolutely right, Technopka. You don't want to just bring in um, an AI and call the solution done. Like we have an algorithm and you know we've solved this problem. Instead, what business metric are you trying to solve for, and how are you tying the performance of the algorithm of the AI back towards that business value, and are you measuring the efficacy of that program? I think that's really important to establish from day one. Dr. Holomka, hospital at home. Um, I was, uh, we had a panel of CISOs uh, recently, and one of them talked about how uh, it gets difficult when devices leave the four walls of the health system uh, from a security point of view, uh, just in terms of knowing where they are. Uh, and then if uh, one of them needs to be replaced, switching those out. Uh, so there, there, you know, there are security issues that come with sending people home with with certain types of devices and equipment. Do you have any high level thoughts around that? Several. So uh, what does IOT stand for? Internet of targets. Uh, very good. <laughs> right? Because suddenly you're putting on your network or instantiating in a software system that is say mission critical a series of devices that may lack basic protection, may be very easy to overcome their security controls. So a couple of things that we have chosen to do in our deployments. First, we do a rigorous review of all the devices that might be used in the home. That is, we are, though a patient might bring their own telephone or something like that, they're not bringing their own blood pressure cuff their own bathroom scale, their own remote patient monitoring, that is actually provisioned and installed in the home by a new class of worker we call a community paramedic. So what we're doing is we're, and this is Mayo's approach, Kaiser's approach too, you take an individual who say EMT skilled and upskill them to be able to deal with delivery and supportive equipment and supply chain in the home as part of the whole care delivery in a non-traditional setting. So by having a skilled person and pre-qualified devices, oh, by the way, we also use things like LTE modems that we deploy in the home so that we're actually going over a dedicated cellular connection for the output of all those devices and security controls around it, you mitigate the risk. So I think completely correct that if you just take a random, I bought it on Amazon, remote patient monitor device, put it on your home-based wireless network, you're putting yourself at risk for intrusion. Nick, any thoughts? Uh, nothing to add on that one. Nothing to add on that one. Okay, we're not going to touch that one. Um, hospital at home, end of life, patient transport. Dr. Holomka, you, you've been through a lot lately. Your mom's at home with you now. Um, do you have any thoughts around uh, technology and uh, hospice at home? Uh, things around that, where that's evolving, and that make can that make that process easier? So, as Mayo Clinic works with Medically Home to explore this continuum of care, so ask yourself the question: Could you do an emergency department visit in the home? Well, sure, you could. And if you needed to be admitted, could you admit a person to their home? Well, you could. If you need to discharge a person to a skilled nursing facility or a rehab, could you discharge them to their home? Oh, you could. 
So we've actually run pilots for all these different kinds of caregiving models. So in effect, you have an urgent issue and everything from the moment that issue happens to the point you're totally well is dealt with in the home. And hospice, of course, is just part of the continuum of healthcare. So ensuring that, again, it's, it's taking the mystery out of this. I mean, all of us have capacity for compassion, but I'm not sure all of us have a deep enough understanding of the healthcare science or the policy or reimbursement ramifications to navigate this on our own. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely think we are going to need public-private partnerships, private industry innovators to create the ease that we require to get the services to the right patient at the right time in the right setting. And those services should absolutely include end-of-life care. Nick, um, you know, as we talk today about the, the uh, proposed rule coming out, um, it makes me think that the, the coordination and the interaction among the C-suite at a health system between the CIO uh, the chief compliance officer, the CISO, chief privacy officer, and legal, they really all have to be on the same page, knowing what's coming down the pipe, understanding these proposed rules, coordinating. Um, just your, you have any thoughts around that, what you've seen the best, best health systems doing at that level in that way? Uh, there's a great article on this the other day um, on Becker's about uh, how the best type of leadership in healthcare. And, you know, a lot of the points came down to, just clarity and what uh, the team is trying to solve, what metrics are being used to evaluate success. Um, but I think the other thing I'd add, tying this back to Dr. Lomka's talk, is it's not forgetting the humanity in it. I think it's really easy to get caught up in the, the business operations, the logistics, the algorithms, and all of this noise when at the end of the day, we're all just trying to treat patients. We're all just trying to improve quality of life uh, and quality of care. And so, Sometimes I think work can get really complicated and inundated, inundated when we forget that and, and just remind ourselves what we're really trying to solve and how we're uh, focusing our, our work together as a team, I think is really important. No, and it goes back to, you know, staffing. Um, we, we talked about staffing concerns um, among nursing staff, things like that. You can have the best algorithms working, um, but if if as a family member, if you don't have the people to, to, if you can't get someone when someone needs an ice chip, you know, we've all been there trying to help. Uh, and it's just amazing that, you know, the humanity and, and keeping our mind on that as we try and do this work in healthcare. Um, I'll, I'll ask for a final word, uh, a final piece of advice for our audience. And then I think we'll wrap. So, um, Nick, let me start with you. What's your, your final uh, piece of advice for those that are going to listen to this? Obviously, if you're on this, you're concerned about change. You know, it's a policy uh, event and policy means change. What are the changes? We talked about some big ones. So what's your best piece of advice for the change you see coming down the road? Uh, I've said this word a couple of times and I'll say it again. I think it's about partnership. I think we need to be sitting on the same side of the table, whether we're patients, whether they're clinicians, whether we're at clever identity administrators or whether we're vendors, we all need to be sitting on the same side of the table and solving the same problems um, and approaching relationships and building partnerships with that in mind, I, I think is, is incredibly important, especially for the leaders on this call as they're thinking about who they're partnering with, 
um, and, and how they're partnering. Uh, and then identifying the characteristics of those partners that's going to help them solve those problems. Very good, Dr. Halamka. And I certainly agree with what Nick has said. We can't any of us do this alone. You know, partnerships, joint ventures, collaborations are very important. One of the things that I said, Anthony, is I would try to make sure the audience felt very positive okay. about our remarks today. Sometimes, and I've been at this for 40 plus years, as you know, you see a perfect storm happening. And that perfect storm is when the technology is good enough, the policy and reimbursement are supportive, and there's a cultural urgency to change. As we look at fall 2022, we actually have all three, right? Think about the technology we've talked about today for machine learning is actually really pretty good. We see policy enablers for care at a distance, for ethical, fair use of AI. But we also see people in this sort of hybrid work world we're all in right now. It's like, oh, I actually want care delivered in novel ways. I want continuous rather than episodic care. I want remote care of all kinds. I want reimbursement that's more clear. Okay, the cultural demands will push the products. So I think all of us can feel good that this next couple of quarters, it may be you know, a little rocky with inflation or with some supply chain challenges, but there's such overwhelming pressure to innovate that I actually think this time of challenge ahead will be a golden era for innovation. And uh, if anything, I wanna to try to be at the center of that innovation. Well, very good, wonderful event. Um, <clears throat> regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event's ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event, you could reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you could go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank um, our speakers, Dr. John Holomka and um, Nick Culbertson. I want to thank ProTennis for sponsoring, and I want to uh, put a good word out to uh, Dr. Holomka's mother. And uh, may she, uh, you know, be comforted in her home with her son. Thank you and so I'm much. Thank you, everybody, for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.